Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a third-year graduate student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study supernovae and the galaxies they came from. I'm Milena Rice. I'm a fourth-year PhD student at Yale University, where I study planetary systems. And I'm Will Saunders. I'm a third-year grad student at Boston University, where I study the atmospheres of planets in our solar system. You're listening to episode 27, Where the Sidewalk Bends. In this episode, we'll dive into the geometry of our universe and some of the tricks that we use to think about something that's so deeply non-intuitive. Now, this is a topic that spans cosmology, relativity, and even a bit of transient science. I promise they didn't just throw that in for my benefit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the host for this episode, so Will and Milena will be our guides on this topsy-turvy journey through two astrobytes. But let's begin our descent into the Upside Down a long, long time ago, in 300 BC. Tell us a story, Alex. The Lighthouse of Alexandria had just been built, Aristotle died only 20 years before, and the Greek mathematician Euclid published his Elements, and laid down the foundations for geometry within it. In describing the foundation for geometry, he laid out a list of rules. One of them is the following, and I'll paraphrase. Draw two line segments that don't touch. Call them segments A and B. And then draw a line C through both of those segments. If the interior angles AC and BC sum to less than 180 degrees, then lines A and B have to eventually cross on the same sides as angles AC and BC if you were to extend them. Now, this is a lot of words. Basically, another way to say it is that if you have lines that aren't parallel, they'll cross eventually. If you have parallel lines, then they won't cross. And this makes complete sense. If the angles sum to exactly 180, then you have two parallel lines. And if they sum to greater than 180 degrees, then they'll cross at the opposite side of those angles. This is reminding me of eighth grade algebra class. <laughs> yeah, I should have worked it into a word problem. <laughs> Wait, if they sum to greater than 180, couldn't it be like a saddle? They wouldn't have to cross, right? Absolutely right. We're not quite there yet, and neither were the Greeks in 300 BC. <laughs> so this postulate laid forth by Euclid can also be heard. So I've created a set of sounds to hopefully illustrate this point as well. Does that mean I'm off the hook for bringing the space sound today? Thanks, Alex. You are not <laughs> off the hook. Oh, okay. I will call this the, the math sound for this episode, and you're bringing the space sound. <laughs> okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to play a set of two notes, and those notes are changing in frequency. And you'll have to let me know if they will reach the same note at some point in the future, at some point in the past, or if they'll never cross at the same note. All right, cool. Okay. So don't look. Melina, do not look. Melina, you're looking. I still see you looking. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> Eyes are open. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. What do we think? Yeah, it sounds like they, they're going to cross, or they did at the yeah. end. I think they're getting closer to each other. So you're correct. These are two converging tones. And if you were to plot out these two lines in frequency space, 
then the angle between them, the interior angle, would be less than 180 degrees. Got it. This is like a Euclidean space. All right? Now I'm going to play another one. What do we think? Those are diverging, right? Yeah, one's getting higher, the other's getting lower. Exactly. So these yeah. are diverging, meaning the interior angles between them are greater than 180 degrees. Mm -hmm. They would intersect at some point in the past, but will not intersect in the future. Got it. All right. And now the last one, uh, you can probably see where this is going. So they're both increasing at the same rate? Correct. These are lines in frequency space with the same slope shifted in starting frequency. They never converge because they're parallel lines in frequency versus time space. That was my first pass at trying to sonify what Euclid meant in creating this, what we now call Euclidean space. But unlike the rest of his book Elements, this fifth postulate seemed maybe more like a hypothesis than something that naturally fell out of the rest of the rules in the book. And for 2,000 years, mathematicians around the world set out to either prove or disprove what later became known as the parallel postulate. Actually, one of the scientists working on this problem was Carl Friedrich Gauss. Although he never published any papers on the subject, he wrote in a private letter in 1824, and I quote, the assumption that in a triangle, the sum of the three angles is less than 180 degrees leads to a curious geometry quite different from ours, but thoroughly consistent, which I have developed to my entire satisfaction. You're saying it took 2,000 years to think about drawing lines on a sphere? Yeah. Wow. It did. <laughs> That's crazy. And sure. it's interesting because Euclidean geometry became the framework around which you thought, right? You, you embedded information within this Euclidean space, but it took so long for people to think about, well, what if you just transformed this space? That took 2,000 years. Wow. Wow. I mean, maybe people were thinking about it, but it wasn't expressed formally as a mathematical postulate for a long time. Right. Yeah, and I guess it's something that we're so familiar with that it seems like it would be obvious, but at the time, if nobody had ever brought it up as a concept to you, wouldn't necessarily be something you'd think of. And even Gauss, like I mentioned, never published any papers on the matter, potentially because he thought it was too revolutionary of an idea to be widely accepted at the time. But... He sent off that personal letter, and just like that, non-Euclidean geometry was born. An exciting time for mathematicians everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and since then, we haven't looked back. Although, in some geometries, looking forward actually is looking back. But <laughs> in non-Euclidean geometry, geometries can exist where the coordinate system bends and stretches like rubber, like Milena was alluding to. And that means that even straight lines can converge. I think a relatively intuitive way to think about this is longitudes on the Earth, where they are all parallel lines and they're relatively distant when you're at the equator, but because everything is drawn on a sphere, they actually all end up mating at the poles of the Earth. Yeah, that is a great way of thinking about it, because the Earth is curved, and so you get two-dimensional thinking in a three-dimensional world, stuff mm -hmm. starts to get a little wacky. And there you have it. That's non-Euclidean geometry, which you can think about when two lines that start out as parallel a certain distance from each other don't stay the same distance from each other. Or you can also think about this as the internal angles of a triangle can sum to less than 180 degrees or more than 180 degrees, depending on the geometry that you choose. Exactly.
Now, it turns out that non-Euclidean geometry is critical for understanding our universe. Why is this? So I'm, I'm wondering if maybe spheres were less common before the 1800s because people didn't really think about the Earth being a sphere. But actually a lot of objects in astrophysics are spherical, and just trying to imagine doing every stellar model in Cartesian coordinates sounds like absolute torture to me. That sounds terrible. <laughs> spheres, disks, and blobs, right? Yeah, yeah spheres, That's disks, and blobs. Disks, too. If you didn't have polar geometry, that would just be terrible. It would be so right. hard to figure anything out because mathematically it makes so much more sense to assume this symmetry in spherical coordinates. Right, of course. And so even if there, even if it's possible to do this geometry in Euclidean space on spheres, it's much more convenient to use non-Euclidean geometry. And there are some spaces where you can't use Euclidean geometry at all. Like where? So it turns out that space-time itself is actually curved. When you have large masses, then they curve the space-time around them, and you have to actually account for that in a lot of different astrophysical phenomena. So now you're talking about small-scale geometry of the universe. What's the shape of the universe at large scales? Do you have to use non-Euclidean geometry there as well? You might. It depends. And, and the truth is, we're not really sure. But going back to something Melina said... We jumped from talking about the concept of dimensions in space to talking about space-time. And it's just shorthand for treating time like it's a fourth dimension, like you can behave like it's in space. Mm -hmm. And that's something that uh, physicists and astronomers do really without thinking. And on paper, right, it's not all that hard. But when you first encounter it, and you're like, well, time isn't space. How can we just treat it like it is? You have to sort of suspend disbelief because it works. Right. Yeah, it's true. It's not necessarily intuitive, but time is really just a fourth dimension where you have three spatial dimensions and then time is also constantly moving forward. It does sort of logically make sense if you step back and think about it, and then it makes the math end up working out nicer when you're trying to figure out what happens in astrophysics. Before we tread into the metaphysical, I want to ask a question <laughs> about the environments where space-time, right, this blend of space and time as a fourth dimension, might become really non-Euclidean, or other specific objects that you can think of where you have to use this warped space-time metric? Well, if you're thinking about objects, then black holes tremendously warp space-time because there's just so much mass and a very small amount of space in these singularities. And so the strong gravity of the black hole warps the space-time around it, and that's the basis of general relativity, which was developed by Einstein in the early 1900s. Yeah, we talked about black holes in detail in one of our early episodes and discussed some of the ways in which space-time gets really funky. So we'll not spend a lot of time harping on that today. I'm still waiting on an email back from Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I thought that he was <laughs> going to give us a shout-out from that episode. <laughs> It's not just black holes that warp space-time. Anything with mass warps space-time. It's just mm -hmm. black holes do so in a way that we can easily detect and explore. But, you know, the reason that uh, one thing orbits another thing is because in, in the general relativistic sense, the larger thing with mass warps space-time more than the smaller thing with mass. And then they end up following straight lines in a curved space-time. Right. I have a question that could probably be asked of any astrophysical topic, but how do we really know that? How can we measure that space is curving? Yeah, it's a good question. 
Well, one way that we can actually directly measure this is through gravitational lensing. So if you have a massive body pass in front of another body that is emitting light, the warped space-time around the massive lensing body that's in the foreground will actually warp the light from the object behind it. And so you'll end up with these distorted or magnified or stretched images that you end up actually seeing from the Earth. So if the foreground object is a galaxy, you can use that observed distortion, for example, to figure out the distribution of dark matter in that galaxy. You can also use this to look for planets. Aha! (laughs) (laughs) I always have to toss that in there. (laughs) One of the key principles of using lensing is that we know what the shape of the background object is supposed to be. So if it's, say, a spiral galaxy and it comes out looking all funky, we know that's not how it actually looks. It got lensed because we can't usually see the foreground lenser. It could be dark matter. So that helps us measure the curvature of space on smaller scales, right? What phenomena might we be able to use to measure the large scale curvature of space time? Right. So if you're wondering what the shape of the whole universe is, you have to go to the biggest things that we can detect. Um, And that is, for one, the cosmic microwave background, which we've talked about before, this echo left over from an early stage in the universe's development that is detectable everywhere in every direction. Then there's baryonic acoustic oscillations, which we've spoken about in the past, that before all of the subatomic particles formed atoms, they were oscillating in this characteristic way. And then once they formed atoms, all the oscillations were sort of frozen into place, and we can detect those. And then we can also look at type 1a supernovae because they always emit at the same or very similar brightness. And we can predict that and use them as standard candles. But the most exciting and new one to me before reading the astrobite I want to talk about today is something called a cosmic chronometer. Cosmic chronometer. Hmm. What is that? I don't think I've ever heard of that. Yeah, it's it's neat. I'll tell you about it in a minute when we get to it in the bite. (laughs) Okay. We'll get to it in a second. I just have one more question because I'm curious how all this translates to real measurements. I'm wondering what parameters do we use to quantify the shape of the universe? Right. This is an involved question, and we should do some background before we talk about exactly what parameters. Let's start with this bite that I brought for us today. Sure, sure. It's called Measuring the Curvature of the Universe with Cosmic Clocks. It's written by Leila Linke. And the paper is by Vagnazzi and others, which was accepted to the Astrophysical Journal. Astronomers have been wondering for the longest time what the universe is made of. And we had no reason to believe it would be made of anything other than the stuff that we can actually see and study in the lab. That is baryons, that's normal matter, and radiation, light. Those are the things we actually can work with. And then back in 1933, uh, Fritz Wicke, for astrophysical fame, realized that galaxy (laughs) clusters didn't have enough stars to keep all the galaxies bound. There had to be more mass in the clusters. And we also realized in an individual galaxy, the rotation curve of the galaxy is flat. That is, once you get a certain distance from the center of the galaxy, the speed does not decrease as you go further out, meaning there's a lot more mass than we thought. Thank you, Vera Rubin, for making those measurements. Yeah, I was going to say, thank you, Vera Rubin. (laughs) Absolutely. And so between Zwicky and Rubin, we found dark matter, this thing we have no idea about other than the fact that it has mass. And it's about five times more abundant than the mass we can see. Then, much later, in 1998, there were two important papers published using the Type 1a supernovae 
that found the universe is expanding at an accelerating rate. And that, they postulated, is due to some sort of energy we can't see, ergo dark energy. And just to clarify, dark matter and dark energy are different things? Yes, they're very different. We have even less of an idea what dark energy is than dark matter. <laughs> <laughs> so people are looking for the dark matter particle, right? Are people looking for the dark energy particle? Do we just have no idea what it is? We're starting with dark matter and we'll figure things out there first? I think people are working on both simultaneously. Dark matter has a benefit, which is that it has detectable mass. It affects the way that light mm -hmm. propagates and the way that things orbit and so on. Dark energy, to our understanding, doesn't do that. It only affects the largest scale universe expansion. Right. Well, dark matter seems to impact smaller scales, too. So both ongoing, but both quite dark still. Yeah, harder mm -hmm. to study dark energy in a lab, I guess. Quite a bit. Well, they both, <laughs> I mean, we might have them both in our lab and we wouldn't know. That's um, true. <laughs> so in the last few decades, the W map and then the Planck satellite observations were able to give us the proportions of the universe in terms of dark energy, dark matter, and baryons. It turns out it's about 68% dark energy, 27% dark matter, and 5% baryons. So in a lot of science, they tell you to focus on 80%, right? They say if you can understand what 80% <laughs> of something is, 80% of the causes, 80% of the constituents, you have a good sense of what's going on. If that's true for the universe, then everything we've ever done, seen, people we've talked to our entire lives are meaningless. We're not even 20%. We're 5%. <laughs> But isn't the vast majority of all the space just nothing? It's just vacuum, right? I guess we understand vacuums. <laughs> and I, I will also say that Michael, who we interviewed last episode, is maybe a case study in, in following the minutia, measuring That's centimeter true. height waves on a, a distant body as a case study for something really deep and fundamental. So <laughs> I do think that the rest of the 20% is also really valuable. That's right. And when you get deep enough into a problem, you do explore the full 100%. But if you're an outsider looking in on the problem and you're saying, well, I want to understand how this universe works. Let's focus on the 80%. You miss all of humanity. But that's okay <laughs> because we're still here and we're going to keep talking about this cosmology craziness. <laughs> now, in cosmology speak, they give these proportions an omega. Each one is an omega with a different subscript. So omega lambda is the dark energy. And lambda actually comes from Einstein's postulate of a cosmological constant that was kind of wrong but turned out to be kind of right because Einstein is amazing. And then <laughs> for ordinary matter, it's omega with a subscript M. For radiation, it's omega with a subscript RAD is how they usually write it. And you, you may have remembered, I didn't mention the percent radiation. It's really, really tiny. It's like 10 to the negative 4. So we can just say that's zero. It's like a rounding error. And then there's a fourth omega, the omega K. And that actually is the, the property that is of greatest interest to the authors of this paper because that relates to the curvature of the universe. Now, we know these omegas aren't constant. Way in the past, in fact, in the beginning universe, radiation, omega rad was the largest. And then omega M was the largest. The baryons took over. And now it's omega lambda. Dark energy is the dominant thing in the universe. And it could shift again. So we may not know for many years, but dark energy took over about 9 billion years into the universe and we're getting close to 14 billion. So, you know, things do change. So K usually means constant. Is omega K some sort of constant additive factor or why is, what, what exactly does it mean? Yes, well done. That's sort of where it comes in. So all the omegas are designed to add up to one. That's the way this system is set up. If you add omega lambda, omega m, omega rad, and omega k, they have to equal one. 
Now, if we recall, the omegas are sort of the proportion of the universe that is in each quantity. Omega lambda is the proportion, the percentage in dark energy. And omega k is this factor to balance it out, and it's the actual curvature, the total overall shape of the universe. So if omega k is not zero, if the universe is not flat, then it actually changes how we understand the breakdown of the different constituents of the universe. So it kind of makes sense that back in the radiation-dominated universe, omega rad was larger if it's the fraction of the universe comprised by radiation. I'm wondering, you're probably going to tell us what omega k looks like today, but do we know anything about omega k's change with time? We don't. Okay. It's, it's so hard to measure that the, any data we get is limited to today or recent past. But you quoted these percentages to us, right? Like how much dark energy and dark matter and baryonic matter we have. Yep. So that means we we have to know what omega sub k <laughs> is, right? You must have known that to pull that out, right? The, those results were assuming omega k is zero. Oh, okay. So if omega k is not zero, it does change them, but it's not going to be very far from zero. It'll be very, very close to zero. It's all a lie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Baryons are actually 100%. <laughs> Radiation is a lie. <laughs> now, as Alex talked about in the beginning, non-Euclidean geometry is very common in space, but it's not so easy to understand. And the universe is 3D, and we don't do a great job thinking about what 3D curvature looks like. The best thing we can do is to think of a 2D curvature and then sort of say, Eh, just assume it works in 3D as well. <laughs> so your omega k equals zero space is flat. That's a sheet of paper. Your parallel lines never cross. Triangle angles add up to 180, all is well. If you have an omega k less than zero, negative, you're thinking the surface of a sphere, just the surface. And so on the surface of the Earth, right as Milena said, the lines of longitude end up meeting, so parallel lines touch. The angles of a triangle can add up to more than 180. You can make them add up to like whatever you want by picking the right places. And if you walk in one direction, you actually loop back around. Then there's omega k greater than zero. And this is an open geometry. This is best understood as a saddle shape in 2D. And if you don't like the saddle, I actually like to think of it as the shape of a Pringle. <laughs> I always <laughs> think of it as a Pringle. I always think of a saddle. <laughs> I, I grew up in a horse neighborhood. What can I say? <laughs> when I was in high school, one of my friends, Blake, would always bring in Pringles for lunch. And so I had learned about this shape being a potential shape of the universe. <laughs> so I would tell Blake, you shouldn't eat those Pringles because you could be eating universes. <laughs> but actually, as it turns out, that's the least likely uh, shape of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> it could be a different universe, but it's probably not this universe. So I can safely eat my lunch and you can too. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're wondering, why do we care about the curvature of the universe? Why is it important? It goes back to the equation. The omegas sum up. So if omega k is different, it changes the way that we understand the other parameters as well. And Alex, you asked what the omega might have been, the omega k might have been in the early universe. Mm -hmm. It's very possible that the early universe was much more curved. And then the inflation period sort of stretched it out. If you go outside and look at your street, you don't notice the curvature of the Earth. 
but if you grab a ball the size of your hand, you can't miss it. So this sort of local linearity principle might make the universe appear to be flat on a small scale when it's actually not on a larger scale. And that's really what they want to understand in this astrobite. It's got to be so tough if it looks almost perfectly flat at the scales that we can measure it than trying to figure out whether there are any deviations from that at all. Because we also don't know the size of the universe, right? If it's infinite or not. Right. And then there could be the smallest deviation from flat that could lead to it being a completely different shape at its largest scales. Absolutely. I wonder if this is how people felt when they were trying to figure out what shape the Earth was. Interesting. Because, you know, that that at the time was pretty much the entire universe. And so we're just sort of in a larger scale version of the same right. question. Well, the ancient Egyptians knew the shape of the Earth. That's true. They knew the size of the but Earth. But did they know the shape and size of the universe? I doubt it. <laughs> because we still don't. <laughs> Hard to use shadows to figure that one out. <laughs> All right, so... If we can't just measure nice shadows to figure out the size of the universe, how do we do it? Yeah, it's really hard. <laughs> it's, it's so bad. So there's this problem called a geometric degeneracy. And it's sort of the same issue. Is like you can't just measure omega k. You have to measure everything and then fill out the equation to see what omega k is left over. And to make matters worse, you also measure the Hubble parameter in these calculations and the Hubble parameter tells you how fast the universe is expanding today. Now if you know anything about the Hubble parameter you know that there are two groups that have different answers about how big it should be and they're both extremely confident in their methodology and their answers so the Hubble tension is not a resolved problem yet so we don't really know how to solve this yet. Hmm. So you mentioned chronometers I think at the beginning of the episode is that where these come in? Exactly. So these authors did a different way of detecting the universe's shape than the other ways. Now, the other ways I mentioned are the CMB, type 1a supernovae, or baryonic acoustic <laughs> oscillations. And Planck has its measurements, and they have their numbers, and it's actually negative. They think the universe is slightly closed. It would be hmm. an enormously large spherical shape. Wow. But these, these authors think there's a better way to do this. The cosmic chronometer is essentially a galaxy that's evolved in a way that was very predictable. And the reason it's predictable is because these galaxies are just about done forming new stars. They're out of gas, and they are going to only evolve the existing stars. So they're going to go from blue to more red and red and red and dead. Okay, so why are these useful? They're useful because no matter how far back in redshift they are, no matter how far back they are in the history of the universe, we can tell how old they are. So mm -hmm. what you can do with this is if you measure the age, the evolution age of the different galaxies as you look backward in time out into the universe, you can calibrate distance in time between two different redshifts, which is a really useful measurement. So is the idea here kind of similar to the idea of supernovae as a standard candle, except you can measure much farther back? Because I imagine supernovae in the very distant universe are probably pretty hard to actually find. That's what makes them a chronometer, right? Instead of standardizing for distance, you're standardizing for time. Hmm, right. Bingo. But they actually can't go back that far. In this paper, they only go back to redshift of like two or three, which is very far in terms of like cosmology time. That's, what is that, like 10 billion years? But it's not all the way back. It's not, it's not the earliest supernovae that we've observed. 
the the goal here is to get a, a value of how redshift has changed over time. It's to, to calibrate the time difference between the different redshifts we see between 1.1 and 1.2 is how many years. And you can do that by looking at a redshift of 1.1 and 1.2, those two galaxies, and seeing how they're evolving and see the time that passed in that amount of redshift. So they made these measurements out to redshift two or three, and what did they find? They're finding their value of omega k is bum, bum. negative 0.0054 with an error bar plus or minus 0.0055. Oh. <laughs> oh, <gosh>. <laughs> <laughs> really hedging their bets here, huh? <laughs> <laughs> now, let's calibrate what an error bar means. An error bar is one standard deviation. So between plus one error bar and minus one error bar is 68% of all outcomes. Now, you can't say in cosmology anything is really definite unless you have a five sigma confidence. This is nowhere near a five sigma confidence of anything. But it is consistent with a flat universe. That's what they find. But also Ooh. consistent with a non-flat universe. Right. Well, it's tough. And this is the tough thing. Because if the universe is actually flat, it's actually zero, you're never going to get a measurement of actually zero. You're going to get closer and closer, mm -hmm. and you're going to get error bars lower and lower, but you're never going to get actually zero. But if the actual curvature of the universe is ever so slightly negative, it's going to take an incredible amount of precision to differentiate between that and a value that is actually zero but just close. So the thing is, this is consistent with a flat universe. It's not consistent with a closed geometry yet. Very cool. Well, thanks for bringing that astrobite to us, Will. Yeah, yeah I actually learned quite a bit about cosmology this week preparing for it. So I enjoyed this. <laughs> Great. <laughs> did you learn a lot about space sounds as well? Oh, you bet I did. <laughs> <laughs> and the seamless transition has been done. All right, I am going to play a space sound for you. Sounds so foreboding, like a stampede is coming at you from the distance. Okay. Space stampede. We did a sound way back when of wind on Mars? On Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the Insight Probe, right? Is that your guess? Insight mission measured, it was either seismic activity or winds on Mars, and it was like, like this mm. low hum. That's what my guess is. I would believe seismic activity. I don't remember if it was or, wind or, or winds, I guess. Seismic activity. Well, you got it right. It is seismic activity on Mars. Wow. This, this is a Mars quake. Wow. Now, this is a measurement of a 3.7 magnitude Mars quake from Insight. And this occurred on May 22nd, 2019. That's wow. weird. I didn't feel anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty amazing that Mars has some meaningful seismic activity because we just didn't anticipate that. Are Mars quakes common? Insights detected two large Mars quakes that sound sort of like this in its wow. mission so hmm. far. So not nearly as common as earthquakes, but still fairly common for a a body we thought was not tectonically active or not yeah mars uh, doesn't have tectonic plates right right so it has some seismic activity somehow but 
It's not tectonic plates. So future settlements on Mars will have to quake-proof their properties as well. I mean, 3.7, you probably wouldn't feel that unless you were standing, like, on the road. That's pretty weak. Just in case, send astronauts from California. (laughs) (laughs) They're built (laughs) quake-proof. All right, Melina, I think it's about time for your astrobite. All right. I'm really excited to talk about this asteroid because I think it's really cool and it allowed me to learn a lot about math in a particular subfield that I really don't think about very often. So this asteroid is called Ironing Out Infinities with the Conformal Diagram. It's written by Jamie Sullivan and it's about a paper by Roger Penrose called Asymptotic Properties of Fields and Spacetimes. Exciting. Yeah, so you may remember that Roger Penrose was awarded half the Nobel Prize in Physics earlier this year. Which half? (laughs) The left one. (laughs) (laughs) And he was awarded it for the discovery that black hole formation is a robust prediction of the general theory of relativity. And so there's this whole other astrobite about his findings related to the Nobel Prize, which we'll also link in the show notes for reference, but we're going to be focusing specifically on his results in this paper. So Penrose was originally trained as a mathematician, so he's come up with quite a few really cool ideas related to topology and geometry, which is the theme of this episode. So I wanted to bring up a couple of really cool ones that are a little bit better known. So he came up with two of them called the Penrose Triangle and the Penrose Tiling that I want to talk about. Okay. So the Penrose Triangle is this interesting optical illusion that looks kind of like an impossible 3D triangle, where it looks like a 3D shape, but if you actually look at it closely, it does not have any kind of 3D analog, and it consists of three shaded Vs that are put together in a way that it looks like it's shadowed in a certain way, but it can't exist in real life. So something that this reminds me of is like the Mobius strip, which you can create by taking a strip of paper and giving one end an yeah. odd number of half twists and then reconnecting the ends in a loop. And it has super weird properties, so this triangle is sort of similar in that way. But the Mobius strip you can actually create. Yes. The Mobius strip is a real thing. <laughs> this, this is not. <laughs> has exactly one side. <laughs> yeah, it's really strange. Like if you draw a straight line along the Mobius strip from the starting point, just along it, it takes two loops to get back to your starting point, which is just really odd. You know what's interesting is I started digging into shepherd tones for this episode. Are you all familiar with those? No. They're no. tones that sound like they're constantly increasing in pitch, but then double over on themselves. So it sounds like it's an auditory illusion where it wow. sounds like they're increasing forever. On a bunch of different websites for the shepherd tones, they make the connection to Penrose stairs and Penrose illusions as well, because Penrose mm. did a bunch of diagrams where it looks like you have a staircase that's forever increasing in height, but it doubles back over on itself. Like MC Escher. Yeah, I think a lot of Escher's work was inspired by Penrose, I believe. And so they sort of have this connection because, I don't know, a lot of what Penrose does is really interesting visually and thus can also serve as an optical illusion. Can we play a shepherd tone? Sure. Sure. Is it shepherd because that's the name of the person or like, because I was thinking shepherd with sheep, but is that not right? It's it's named after (laughs) Roger Shepherd. (laughs) Okay. You ever notice that a sheep's ba only increases? <laughs> oh, wow. 
Shepherd was the first shepherd to notice this. <laughs> his sheep. Anyway. I like that joke. This is also connecting to, like we said, what are called the Penrose Stairs. So I want to play uh, Shepherd Tone right now. so trippy i really don't understand what's happening <laughs> i think what's happening is that they're layering audio so that they seamlessly transition in the low notes and it like fades it but it's you it's so oh, subtle that you don't notice yeah. it until you're I back at the it. lowest step <laughs> huh that's wild mm-hmm. it's pretty cool so penrose made a lot of diagrams i'm curious to hear about penrose tilings melina uh, yeah, so Penrose tilings are actually really pretty. <laughs> it's a type of aperiodic tiling, so it has no translational symmetries. Uh, and there are a couple of different kinds, but I think maybe one of the most famous consists of two shapes, or which are called Penrose tiles, and you can set certain rules for how they're allowed to be fit together to make this aperiodic tiling. Uh, so they're are lots and lots of different Penrose tilings. Uh, he wasn't the first person to come up with aperiodic tilings, but his name is very closely associated with them. And when reading up on this topic, I also came across this other tiling that's called Kepler's Monsters that actually inspired the Penrose tiles. So Kepler wrote about these in his book, I might be pronouncing this terribly, Harmonis Mundi in 1619. And the tiling consists of these pentagons, pentagrams, decagons, and fused decagons. And he called it, or maybe he didn't call it this, but somebody called it Kepler's <laughs> Monsters, and that's what it's known as. <laughs> so that that was kind of cool to hear about. Penrose also has actually sued a toilet paper company for using a pattern that too closely resembled his aperiodic tiling. So that was pretty funny. That happened in 1997. That's awesome. I kind of want that toilet paper now. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds luxurious. <laughs> Yeah, so Penrose tilings come up a lot. Uh, they're commonly used to decorate because they're really mm. pretty again. And so you, you'll you see this in just tilings that are used for patterns around the world. But enough about toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> in this astrobite, we're going to be talking about another one of Penrose's really interesting topological ideas, which you may have heard of in an astrophysical context. It's called the Penrose diagram, which is also known as the conformal diagram. All right, so what exactly is a conformal diagram? Well, it's a two-dimensional mapping of space-time where the horizontal axis corresponds to space and the vertical axis corresponds to time. So that's straightforward enough, uh, kind of brush aside the fact that there are three dimensions to space. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we can just sort of map this with at least two spatial dimensions in 3D space. The idea of these conformal diagrams is that we're trying to understand causality, which is this idea that's related to the speed of light. And so everything in the universe has a maximum speed. Nothing can go faster than the speed of light. And we can graphically think of this in terms of something called a light cone, where an event that occurs at a certain point in time has a future light cone and a past light cone, and it can't interact with any events outside of that light cone. And the, the idea here is just that events outside the light cone, you'd have to move faster than the speed of light to actually reach them. So you can be inside of the cone, and that would just mean you're going slower than the speed of light. 
but you can't be outside of it because that would defy this concept of causality, which is that these events that are occurring at different points in the space-time diagram cannot interact with each other because they would have needed to move faster than the speed of light in order to do that. Got it. You can even make a light cone in your everyday life, it's just not with light. For instance, uh, if you need to drive from New York to Boston, it takes about four hours. So if you're in New York and there's an event happening in Boston in two hours, it's outside of your drive cone. It's not <laughs> happening yet, but you cannot get there because you can't drive it in half the time. This is true, <laughs> especially with traffic in New York and Boston. Jeez. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this is sort of the idea of the light cone, but space time is potentially infinite. The time component is infinite. Space, questionable. <laughs> so how <laughs> how can we actually represent that on paper if we want to draw this out with the entire universe? The Penrose diagram or the conformal diagram is a way to actually do that, which is using a couple of clever techniques to actually draw the entire universe on a piece of paper. Wow, I would just think you would need a very big piece of paper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would it would probably take more than all the trees we've got, so <laughs> Thank you, Penrose, for saving the environment. <laughs> <laughs> the original environmentalist. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> so Penrose showed that it's possible to represent the entirety of this universe on paper by changing our coordinate system. So we can translate all of our times and spatial coordinates with the inverse tangent function, which smoothly maps all real numbers to a value between negative pi over 2 and pi over 2. So by... Doing this clever translation, we no longer need to deal with infinities. Everything's mapped onto this finite space. Uh, and we can also enforce that in our coordinate system, light rays only travel at 45 degree angles along the light cone, which I think what this means is just that light travels at a constant speed. So you can set up your spatial coordinates to enforce that angle. And so with these two simplifications, we can put the infinite extents of both space and time onto a diagram, which is pretty cool. So if you want to figure out what happens at the end of the universe, what the ultimate fate is, you just draw the conformal diagram and then you look at the edge of your page, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and this this has actually been used to map out, again, the causal structure of the entire observable universe, and it can map out infinities in a meaningful way. It's been used to study the cosmic microwave background. It's been hmm. used to show what happens to particles that cross the event horizon of a black hole, because that you start dealing with a lot of infinities when you get close to black holes as well and to map out the causal structure of black holes so what happens to light as it gets closer to these black holes so it's a pretty useful tool and it's been used a lot in astrophysics and it's amazing because it's it's just a couple of transforms that allow us to do this but it kind of takes a mathematician to be able to think of how we can actually represent these ideas in a slightly less abstract way. Sounds really useful. Yeah. It's really cool that just a shift in the way that you think about things can open up all these doors into future discoveries. I'm reminded of mm -hmm. when people made the name shift to black hole from, I think it was like frozen star when it was originally theorized. And even just calling it a black hole, people made all these direct analogies in their heads that allowed them to start pushing the envelope on what they could study of that object. Yeah. Interesting. It's kind of like how data exploration is incredibly powerful because just like representing ideas in different visual ways can help you to learn more about it. Definitely. So this is a nice example of that. Is it more of a pedagogical tool than it is in a research tool? 
I would say it's both. Okay. I'm not sure whether there's a lot of new research that's coming specifically out of Penrose diagrams, but I can see that they would be helpful to visualize ideas that are highly relevant in new research, and that might help you to come up with new ideas. Right. Mm -hmm. But again, I... I have never actually read a paper with a Penrose diagram in it besides this one. (laughs) (laughs) But it makes sense as just a new way to organize your thoughts and a a better framework to map your ideas onto. Right. In some of these subspecialties, you don't actually use the cutting edge tool unless you're really invested in the field. For example, right, there's a whole way of writing vector calculus that is completely different than the way that we were taught in school. And unless you're a theorist who uses vector calculus in the, the sort of the cutting edge way, you wouldn't ever really learn the ins and outs of that system, even though it's really useful. It's just not intuitive um, or requires a shift in thinking that isn't worth it for most people. So maybe this is kind of similar, right? You, you don't really use it unless you are one of the people at the cutting edge of you know, investigating uh, topology in space time, in which case it's sort of b- baked into how you think. Mm-hmm. Although I will admit the Penrose diagrams aren't that intuitive in that your spatial coordinates and time coordinates are now sort of warped, but it's more intuitive than thinking about infinity. So Right. It becomes something you can see <laughs> on a sheet of paper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for bringing that astrobite to us, Malena. You got it. It's good to have a historical paper every now and then. Yeah. Penrose, the data scientist, the mathematician, the illustrator, the environmentalist. Polymath. The polymath of a man. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think we should move on to our one-sentence summaries. So why don't you get us started, Will? Is the universe a Pringle? Well, probably not. Uh, could it be the surface of a sphere? Maybe, but unlikely. Is it a flat piece of paper? Yes, that's the most likely situation. <laughs> There's semicolons all through this, right? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that's like <laughs> maybe like six sentence summary. <laughs> you say it fast enough and you pretend like it's a sentence. What about you, Malia? Can you do any better? <laughs> With a conformal diagram, also known as a Penrose diagram, we can place infinities in a diagram in a logical way to understand some of the less intuitive properties of space-time. Bravo. I love it. Thank you. Well, thanks both of you for bringing those astrobites. I hope you both learned something today. I hope our listeners learned something today. I definitely learned a lot. Yeah, I learned so much. (laughs) (laughs) That concludes episode 27 of ASB, Where the Sidewalk Bends. If you want to read the two astrobites we talked about today and or the associated papers, check out the links in the show notes. What are your favorite curved space-time analogies? Ants on a basketball? An expanding balloon? (laughs) Write to us at astrosoundbites.com and share your thoughts. You can find all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. (laughs) 